Amen. As you are uh, finding Ephesians chapter 4, um, I'm going to put a record on repeat and, and repeat the same spill I gave at the beginning of, of last week um, because it is summertime. And, uh, and so with that, you've got people that are in and out. So I, I just want to make sure that um, most people hear this from me in this setting um, before they hear it in, in some other way. And so I wanted to, to first of all, um, say visitors, thank you for coming this morning. We are so um, happy that you chose to come and worship with us. But just know that what I'm about to say is a family conversation. And so it puts no weight on friends of the family, if that makes sense. It puts all the weight on, on the family. And so just know that you're more than welcome to hear this conversation, but just puts no weight on your shoulders. Okay, so um, Stonegate family. So th- this is kind of the, the, the same spiel I gave last week. One is wanted to update you on where we are with the conference center, that we've got another six months. So that takes us into um, next February. Um, so that's uh, roughly nine months from now. And they're in the process of kind of revising their policy. And we're hoping that that works for our advantage along the way that we can stay longer if need be. Okay, now on the other end of that, uh, and by the way, if, if it doesn't work out longer and we still need a place to go, that probably means a school for us for uh, however long it, it takes to get where we need to go. Okay, so now to back up from there, um, on the other side of the equation is we are actively um, looking and trying to be very proactive in figuring out where is it that God would, would lead us out of here and, and toward. And so we're actively looking for land, we're actively looking um, for buildings, all those sorts of things we're in the hunt for right now. Okay, so that brings that end of that the look for that and kind of the hunt for all that. The opposite end of that equation is a financial piece for us that we're having to try to be as wise um, stewards as we possibly can of what God has given us so far. And so with that, um, um, in, the, in the financial conversation, I always preface it, and I did last week as well, with these two things. There's a weird thing that happens in churches when you just mentioned money, you know? Like this, this little wall kind of tends to go up and like that, that vein right here on your forehead starts to kind of pop out. And so, uh, and I think there's, there's, could be two reasons for that. One is that uh, you, you might have seen mismanagement in the church, and that should anger you. That's a good God-centered anger that should be there. So if I drive up in a Bentley next week, you've got every right to be mad, right? Okay, so nobody's driving Bentleys around here. I just want to throw that out. And so that, that's really probably not the deal for most of us in here, though. The, the second reason is probably the deal for you. If something, when, when we talk finances, just kind of rises in your heart, the second one's probably the issue, is that when you talk money with anybody, it automatically slaps a main cultural idol for us. I mean, just a, a normal cultural idol in, in most people's hearts. And so when that, when that thing is slapped, it comes up in really weird ways. And so if, if there's something that happens in the middle of this conversation in your heart, I, man, I just want to press on you. And just as a person that loves you, I, I want to kind of just gently encourage you to make sure you take the mirror and look at your heart in the middle of that. Over, like, what, what is that in you that, that brings that wall up? Okay, so with that said, this is the financial situation. Over the last uh, roughly 10 months, we've saved about uh, $100,000 for the purpose of kind of gearing it toward a building. Okay, so that's been about a 10-month saving for us. Now, if you are involved in kind of the real estate world and, and you're looking at trying to buy enough land or a building that would be suitable for something like we're doing, you know that $100,000 doesn't go very far. And so over the next three months, we are trying to save another $100,000 um, to get our cash reserves in such a way that, that we can make a move out when God presents us something that's, that's doable for us. And so with that, um, the question could come, how are we going to get $100,000 in three months? And uh, that answer goes like this. Number one, we will continue to be very, very frugal. Um, If you've been around here for the last 10 months, you know that unless we absolutely need something, we do without it. 
Um, we do not have primo anything around here. And, and we're t- t- perfectly fine with that. And so we're going to be, continue to be great stewards on this end of it. And on the other end, um, we're just encouraging you to get before God and for you to have that conversation with God on what would it mean for me to live with an open hand in my church and what would it mean for me to leverage all that God has for me and given to me for the gospel's sake. And so that's not, I mean, we're not imposing anything on you. It is, we're just saying get in front of God and let him be the one that throws that on you. And so that could mean a tithe times two for a few months. That could mean trying to, to figure out if you've got this much cash, what that means to, to live open-handed in the middle of that, okay? So I, the encouragement for that on our part is for you to get before God, though, and you to do business there. That's where we would love for that to take place. Okay, let me pray for us in Ephesians chapter four. Um, we'll get running. God, we love you, and God, we thank you for your gracious, gracious provision for us thus far. Um, God, we know that you have given us everything um, that we need to make every step that you have for us in the future. And so, God, we have great confidence in that. Um, God, we know that you own the cattle on a thousand hills, and you can make anything you want possible. And so, God, we um, just tell you that we are very dependent upon you in the midst of a move out of this place and into something that's a little more permanent. Um, So, God, I pray for your gracious provision that you would give us real um, insight and wisdom as we take those steps. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Ephesians 4. We're starting in verse 25-ish, right down um, through there. Um, but let me catch you up. And this is how I've, I've, I've tried to start the last two or three sermons, is by making sure that we've got the context for the commands that Paul's giving us. When you hit chapter 4 in Ephesians, I mean, the imperatives, the commands from God through Paul to us, they start flowing at a really fast pace. And so you just get command after command when you start in, in chapter 4. And so here, here's my fear for us, is that we would take those commands and we would rip those out of their gospel context. And as soon as you do that, as soon as we rip them out of the context, then we have ripped all power to walk in those commands. When we lose the context of the gospel, we lose the power to walk in the commands of the gospel. Okay, so we cannot separate the commands that Paul's giving us in chapter 4 from what he's defined for us in chapters 1 through 3. Okay, so we've used three context statements to kind of help us kind of end that over the last few weeks. And, and here they are. I just want to get them to you real fast so we can keep moving. Number one goes like this, that Christians are new creations. Did you know that? If you're a Christian in here, that is a miracle that you are. It's a miracle. I mean, when we think miracles, we typically think God suspending the laws of nature, don't we? But I'll tell you this, there is no bigger miracle on the planet than God wrecking a human heart from their rebellion against him and renovating it. That is a miracle. If you're a Christian, the Bible calls it a new creation. Are you a new creation? It is a miracle if you are one. Ephesians 2 says we are born dead, spiritually unresponsive and rebellious toward God. And for him to save us, to give us affections for him, that is an incredible miracle of God where he makes us a new creation. I love how John Piper describes conversion. He says this about it. Conversion is the creation of new desires. See, you can't give yourself new desires. You can't make yourself love something. That's a God-given thing to love something. Conversion is the creation of new desires, not just new duties, new delights, not just new deeds, new treasures, not just new tasks. Becoming a Christian is a miracle where God radically reshapes the inside of you. I mean, a radical reorientation of the, like the central core of who you are. There has been a fundamental change in your heart if you're a Christian. You came into the world sin-centered, and now you are God-centered. That's what happens if you're a, if you're a Christian. 
You're a new creation. Okay, now this is the second context, uh, context statement. That, new, or that Christians are new creations because of the work of Christ. Okay, so l- let me encourage you with this. If you've got people that you love around your life that are not Christians, and they are spiritually unresponsive and rebellious, I want to encourage you with this thought. Our confidence for their salvation does not lie in them. And you need to pray like this. Your confidence is not in them. Your confidence is in a great and gracious God who works miracles in the hearts of people. That's where our confidence lies, right? And so when we pray, we are praying that a gracious God would overcome spiritual unresponsiveness in people. That's what we're praying for. And so that's our hope. So when we're new creations, it is because of the work of Christ making our heart new while we're unresponsive. I mean, this is the beauty of it. Okay, when you look at Ephesians 1 through 3, every action word that you see, so words like um, redeemed, words like reconciled, words like made alive, words like blessed, words like chosen, words like adopted, all of those words are in the indicative. And here's what that means in the Greek. It means that all of those things were done to you. You're the passive recipients of all those. That's not your initiative. That is God's initiative in your life and in your heart doing those things. That's what, those, that's, the indica, that's what it means. And so you get the indicatives here. This is God at work in you. You are a new creation because of the work of Christ. Okay, th- this is the issue. In, in 1 through 3, Paul is laying out the gospel. This is what God does for you in the gospel. This is his action in the gospel. So we're new creations because of the work of Christ. Here's the last context statement. Okay, now get this gospel logic, because when you get to chapter 4, this statement becomes a reality. Chapter 4, verse 1, you might look there in your Bible. Here's what happens in verse 1. He says, therefore, because of what we've just covered, because you're a new creation by the work of Christ, therefore, now I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. You see that? So, so here is the gospel logic. Because of these things that God has done in you, Therefore, because you're a new creation, therefore your life begins to reflect the fact that you're a new creation. Okay, so this is gospel logic. Okay, if you missed this, you've missed every, you, you've robbed all the power out of your life if you missed this. Gospel logic goes like this. You are a gospel renewed person, so you live a gospel reflecting life. That's gospel logic. God does to us, so now we can do. Okay, this is gospel logic. Because of what you are in the gospel, you're accepted in the gospel, you're made right with God in the gospel, you've been given everything in the gospel. Because of what you are in the gospel and what you have in the gospel, that fuels every command of scripture. That, that fuels a gospel reflecting life. So if you miss what you are in the gospel and what you have in the gospel, you rob all the power to live, in the, to live out the gospel. That make sense? I mean, this is the context for these commands. So you've got to get this issue, the gospel, what you are, what you have in the gospel, down to live out of the gospel. Okay, so this is gospel logic. This is what Paul's saying. So because of these things, therefore, now you can live gospel-reflecting lives. You can now, because you're a new creation, you can live a life that reflects this new creation. Okay, this is where you pick it up in in chapter uh, 4. He's saying, okay, because of this, now I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Look at verse 17. He's going to say, because of this, now you no longer live like you once did. You no longer live like a Gentile. That's not a racial thing. That's a spiritual thing. 
you no longer live like you're godless because you have a God. You've been saved. You've been redeemed. So now you live a redeemed and a saved life. Okay, then when you get to verse 25, he starts to give concrete examples of what it means to live a gospel-reflecting life. In verse 25, you see that one? We're to speak truth. We're not to lie, right? We're to speak truth to one another. Look at verse 26. You see that one? We're not to be like the self-centered anger part. We're to to have a good God-centered anger that can be angry and cry and grieve at the same time. Okay, you come down to verse 28. We're not to steal, but we're to be gospel givers, generous givers, right? 29, we're to speak redemptively. Okay, now this is where you pick it up in verse 31. Because of the gospel, now you can live in these commands. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is take five of what a new creation looks like. This is example five. Take five goes like this, that we display gospel kindness, that we are kind people, right? That that as a Christian, you're to be kind. Now, okay, we would all, I think, agree that we live in an unkind culture. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, common courtesy catches people off guard. You notice that? I mean, you just say hi to somebody and they give you that look of, what do you want? I mean, what, what are you after here, right? We live in an unkind culture. If if you've got eyes and ears that can hear and see, you know this. If you don't see this, you've just become desensitized to it, right? Okay, so, so just open your eyes and watch how people interact with each other. Read the newspaper tomorrow, right? Every page is going to be littered with unkindness, sexual exploitation. People taking advantage of other people. It's all throughout it. Watch the news tonight and you're going to see unkindness, right? Okay, now now those are going to be, in our minds, the big things, but just watch everyday life for you. If you go out and eat today, watch the table sitting beside you and watch the man and the wife sit there. Just watch what happens. Like when your radar kind of becomes aware of, of a lack of kindness, you see it all over the place. You see it in the husband and wife that sit there and eat an entire meal together and never talk, right? I mean, you see it in, in how daddies respond to their kids, and how teenagers respond to their parents, right? Amen to that one, right? Okay, good. Um, you see it in how um, employers treat employees, how employees treat employers, how employees treat employees, right? How friends treat friends. I mean, we could go, I mean, the list is long here, right? I mean, we live in an unkind culture where just the basic common courtesies are now overlooked, and, and they're kind of a special weird thing for us. Okay, look at me here. That cultural shift has made its way into the church. If you spent any time in church, you would probably agree with me when I make this statement that some of the most unkind people I've met have been church men and church women, right? And and so we need to hear the, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We need to feel the thrust of this sword of the Spirit today, these words um, of the Word of God today. We need to be kind people in your homes, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces. God is saying you are to be kind. I mean, just common courtesy here. This should be reflective of a Christian's life because Christ has saved you and been so kind to you. Okay, so so he starts giving some commands here. He's going to say this in verse 31. Put off bitterness. 
Okay, we'll just use bitterness as kind of the catch-all word for the six words in in verse 31. But I want you to to look at these six destructive words. I mean, these are six words that, that when they're in a relationship, your relationship is doomed. These are words that when they find their way into a crevice in your marriage, bad things happen. Okay, look at these six words in verse 31. Um, first one goes like this. These six destructive words. First one goes like this, bitterness. You ever met those people? Okay, this is the thing with bitter people. Bitter people are very self-centered people. So here's what happens when you talk to somebody that's bitter. Every conversation eventually gets back to what their problem is. You notice that? I mean, bitter people can't see past their problem. Bitter people, the world has turned in on them. Now everything revolves around them and their issues, their problems, the difficulty they're having here, the problem they have over here. Every conversation revolves around their difficulty. Bitterness is turning in on yourself. Now, now here's the thing. Bitterness flows from kind of a heart issue, but it manifests itself. And this is the words of John Stott. It shows itself in a sour spirit and sour speech. You ever notice that bitter speech just kind of stinks? Kind of has a weird odor to it, right? You just kind of want to walk away from it. Like, what? you know, you know, it, it just got this weird odor. It just stinks. It's a sour speech. And is there anything more sad than living your life bitter? You know, I mean, is there a sadder phrase in the English kind of vocabulary than that is a bitter old man, a bitter old woman? So he's saying you've got to put away bitterness. Okay, now look on down here. There's more words. He says wrath and anger. Okay, so anger is the internal disposition. Anger is kind of the heart issue underneath, and it shows itself in wrath, right? Okay, now look at verse 26, because in verse 26, God has just told us through Paul, be angry. I you're to be angry. Now he's telling us to put off anger. I mean, it's a little bit of a weird thing, right? And so, so this is not, there, there is a God-centered anger, and there is a self-centered anger. We are to put off self-centered anger. We are to put on a God-centered grieving anger over injustice and sin, right? But, but this is a self-centered anger. Th- this is the anger that comes about when somebody threatens the sovereign rule of your private kingdom. You ever had that happen? Dad, you ever had this happen when you just sit down on the couch, flipped on Sports Center, And all of a sudden, your wife makes a threatening remark. Hey, the trash is full. Why don't you take it out? You know what I'm saying? Like that feeling right there. She she has no idea that she just threatened the sovereign ruler of your private kingdom. I mean, she has no idea what she just did, right? She has no idea that those words were like lobbing grenades over the wall of your kingdom. I mean, this is now a personal attack on the sovereign, right? Okay, this is the anger he's saying it's got to be put away. This is a self-centered anger. This, this is the sort of anger that comes about when your private kingdom is threatened. When your control of your kingdom comes under attack. And it kind of shows itself in this weird, well, I just won't talk to her for the next three weeks, right? I mean, she, she's going to ask me to take, okay, deal's done. Okay, so it's this fly off the handle. I'll just kind of explode right? I mean, it's the the vein popping red face. Let's just go at it. He's saying that's got to be put away. That is not a God honoring thing. That is a sin centered anger and it's got to be put away. Okay. Now he keeps going. He says clamor. Now clamor isn't probably in your normal vocabulary, right? Probably don't use that every day, but this has the idea of, um, 
Guy one, guy two, disagreement in between them. Guy one and guy two really think it's going to be solved by a shouting showdown. You ever seen one of those? Whoever can scream the loudest wins. Husbands and wives, you ever had one of those? Maybe, maybe with your neighbor, maybe with your work oh, a friend. Okay, so it, this is this idea of anger expressed in, I'll just scream the loudest. I mean, I, that, that'll solve it, right? I'll, I'll just scream. This is clamor. I mean, it's this noisy talk, loud talk with anger underneath it. Okay, he goes on and uses this word slander. It's a cousin to gossip, slander and gossip, right? Okay, now we need to be so careful here. So careful. Slander is sin. Gossip is sin. And it is all over the church. Would we agree with that? It's everywhere. And this is how I typically hear it um, justified. Typically goes like this. Well, I'd, I'd say it to their face too. Look, okay, look at me here. That does not make it not gossip. It's still gossip, right? Just because you would say it to them does not mean that it gets out of the category of slander and gossip. If it is not speaking redemptively, there's just like another couple of categories for it, right? Slander and gossip are some of those. Okay, so if it's not redemptive words, it doesn't matter if you would say it to their face. If gossip and slander have at the heart of it a want to tear down and to hurt. Redemptive words have the want to build and to speak life into it, right? Slander and gossip, like to use this thing in, in Proverbs that we talked about last week, are like these sword thrust into people. That's what they are. They're not redemptive words. And listen, they are all over the... Have you noticed that you have a tendency to that? Because everybody thinks that they have a tendency to it and nobody can see that they have one. You have a tendency for slander and gossip. And we need to be so careful. If if we are gossiping slanderous people, it robs us of gospel conversation. It robs us of it. And that, I want to repeat this, that tendency is in you. So be careful there. Okay, now he uses another word. Um, it fi- finishes up there with malice at the end of that. And put away all malice. Now, malice kind of takes it to the next level. When we get to the malice category, we're not just mad. We're kind of planning the demise of them now, right? I mean, we're figuring out how we can work a situation to make sure that our desire to hurt them is, is kind of shown and exposed. And it, and it happens. Okay, this is malice when we start to plan the demise. And here's what Paul's saying. This has got to be put away from the people of God. These have no place in the church of God. They have no place as a new creation. This is not who God has saved you to be. When you walk in these words, like so many of us do, we are slapping on the old clothes. And God's saying, I've dethroned those. I've stripped those off of you and given you new garments. These are not the ones you're to wear. A couple other things about bitterness. Bitterness is a heart issue, and I just want to be faithful to keep this in front of you, that bitterness flows out of your heart. The the problem with bitterness is not them, and it's not your circumstance. That is not the problem with bitterness. The problem with bitterness is internal. If you are bitter, it's a heart problem, not a people problem. If you are bitter, that the issue is inside of you. Okay, now this is Matthew 15. We looked at this a couple of times last week. We'll do it a couple of times this week too. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, slander, malice, anger, wrath. I'll kill them. I mean, whatever. Comes these evil thoughts. Murder, 
adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. You know why we gossip? Because it's in our heart. That's why. So out of the heart, these things flow. Okay, so you see what's happening here? The problem is not that person. Difficult people, now now just think about this. Difficult people in your life are a gracious gift from God to you. Do you know that? They're a gracious gift from God. Without them, a buried heart idol, dirtiness in your heart, gossip in your heart, malice in your heart would lay unexposed until a difficult person reveals it for you. You know that? So they're a grace from you, or a grace from God to show you what's in your heart so you can repent of it and deal with it. The issue is a heart problem. People, difficult people are not the problem. They're a grace so you can see the problem. All right? Okay, so it's a heart issue. Next thing. Bitterness is the result of disbelief in the greatness and goodness of God. So this kind of gives some shape to the heart problem that we have. Okay, if you just start reading the Bible, here's what you can't miss. The Bible is going to say that God is great. He is the sovereign ruler over everything. Wouldn't we agree? That's God. He is sovereign. He is in control. You read um, Joseph. You get a real quick picture through his slavery, imprisonment, and eventual rule that God is in control, right? I mean, that's the story that pictures God's sovereignty. I mean, you read every Job. You read the story of Job. That's a picture of sovereignty. The Bible screams that God is great. He is sovereign. But it doesn't just scream that. It also screams that God is good. You know that? That God uses, he leverages his power on behalf of his children. Just like you do as a dad as a mom, that that God leverages his greatness, all that he is, his power for his glory, one, and our joy, the the joy of his children, two. This is what God's power is doing. Okay, now I want you to think about bitterness with me. Here's what bitterness does. Bitterness says, I don't believe that God is that great, and I don't believe that God is that good. This is the heart of bitterness. This is the disbelief, unbelief of bitterness. It's saying that, that I don't believe, that I, I kind of think God is holding out on me, right? I kind of think that God isn't giving me some of what I deserve. I kind of think that God is withholding some things that would really kind of make my life go. I kind of think that God is not good, not working, not working all things to the good of those who love him, right? I, I don't really think that's going on. I think that really what God's doing is just like Eve in the garden, right? I, I think he's withholding some goodness from me. Okay, look at me here. That is a lie. Okay, now, now I, I want to speak this tenderly because I know some of us in here are in difficult situations. Okay, now look at me here. Even in the midst of the most difficult situations, God is great and he is using his great power, sovereign power for your good. Even when it doesn't feel like it. And bitterness is, I don't believe that. Bitterness is a theological problem. It's not a problem with the circumstance or with people. It's a problem with God. That's what bitterness is. Last one here. Putting bitterness off is an act of God. Like, look at verse 30, 31 there. It says, let all of these things be put off. So, okay, now just hear this. That bitterness, you can't, you can't destroy, you can't dethrone it, you can't destroy it, you can't stand against bitterness. But God can, right? Bitterness makes us dependent upon God knowing, that, listen, that is in the passive. See, the translator is trying to help you there understand what the Greek is saying. When it says, let all of these things be put off, it's saying that you can't put them off. 
that all you can do is stand under the grace of God as he strips those things from you. Let all these things be put off of you. Okay, now, now he moves on. Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So it's not just put these things off. It's not just put off these relational killers. It's not just that. It's also put these things on. It's put off these and put on kindness. We're to be kind people. Christians should be known as the kindest people on the planet. Because there is nobody on the planet that has been treated more kindly than a Christian. This is how Jerry Bridges defines kindness. It'll be on the screen for you. You don't have to worry about writing it down. You can shoot me an email. I'll send it to you. But just listen to this. He says, kindness is the sincere desire for the happiness of others. Kindness is the sincere desire for the happiness of others. Okay, everybody look at me right here. Think about your last week. How often did you have a sincere desire for the goodness and the benefit and the happiness of another? You know what I'm saying? Isn't that convicting? To know that 99% of our thoughts the last week were thinking about our happiness, our comfort, our protection. Kindness is sincerely thinking about how can we bring enjoyment and joy and happiness to them. And wouldn't we agree that's a rare commodity? I mean, you can't find that very often, right? It should be commonplace for the Christian. So he goes on, he's going to say this, that kindness is a tender and forgiving spirit. You see that? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Okay, tenderhearted has this idea of compassion. Okay, now, guys especially in here, I, I want to talk to guys just for a second. There is a tendency in us to, to bring truth to people in an unkind way. And here's what Paul's saying. That is not acceptable for a Christian. Our goal is not just to bring truth to people. It's to bring the heart of God to people. You get, I mean, the, the goal is not just truth. The goal is to get the heart of God in that truth to them. And we need to make sure as we discipline, as we speak, ladies, as we speak, it's not just truth, but it's God's heart wrapped all over that truth. That's tenderhearted. Before you call out the sin of another, make sure you can cry over it. Because that's what a kind heart would look like. That's the disposition here, right? Okay, so he says it's, it's tenderhearted, but he also uses this word forgiveness. And that word forgiveness is this idea of acting in grace towards another. He's saying kindness is being tenderhearted, acting in grace, forgiving one another. When somebody wrongs us, this is the reflex. We apply the gospel. We preach the gospel to ourselves, and we extend the grace of the gospel to the one that offended us. Now, let me ask you the question. Is that your reflex with people? See, this is the goal. The goal is not a random act of kindness. The goal is a life of kindness. And there's a big difference between those two. And to have a life of kindness, we have to have the reflex of gospel kindness to people. Where when we are wronged, we take the gospel and we apply that to their offense in our heart. And then we extend that grace to them. Okay, this is what it means to be kind. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. We are acting in gospel grace towards those around us. And listen, our church will not survive unless you and I are the sort of people that are kind. It won't do it. Unkindness will kill community every day of every week. He goes on to say this, that 
kindness is not negotiable. That this is what we are to be. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit, right? I mean, okay, so if, if, if it's a fruit of the Spirit, it means if the Spirit lives in you, then it's coming out of you. And if this is not coming out of you, then maybe we need to do a check on whether or not the Spirit is in us. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a negotiable. This is not, uh, well, my personality type is kind of this way. It's not that. This is your Christian. And whatever our personality type is, we've got to curb it toward kindness. That's the issue. So it's not a negotiable. Okay, now listen to this statement. That kindness in your life, it, it brings like a validity to gospel conversation for you. Are you hearing that? Like it brings authenticity to your life. If you try to speak gospel and you're unkind, no one cares, right? No one cares. Okay, Augustine, we've talked about him a lot here lately, massive figure in church history. This guy was was living up a life of lust. He was dabbling in cults. This guy was off the deep end. And he, he becomes friends with a guy named Ambrose. He was the bishop of Milan. Okay, so he goes and he wants to to listen to Ambrose speak a few times. He hears him. And eventually God used his friendship with Ambrose to save Augustine. Okay, now this, reflecting back on this, this is what Augustine says about that experience. He says, it was not your great teaching. It wasn't the teaching that got me. I mean, I I love Ambrose. He's a good teacher. It wasn't the teaching that got me. I didn't expect to find that great of, of teaching in a Christian church in any case, right? Okay, then he says this. But what got me was that you were kind to me. And you know, before you learn five proofs for the existence of God, you might want to just work on and sit under gospel kindness that will bring validity to your five proofs, right? So it's not negotiable, and and here's the last one. Kindness grows with the gospel. Kindness grows with the gospel in your life. So if you want to be kind people, you've got to be gospel people. And until you're gospel people, you will never be kind people. Until I'm a gospel person, I will never be a kind person. The gospel grows as kindness grows. Um, You might be familiar in Matthew 18, Jesus gives this parable of, um, uh, he's teaching on forgiveness. And then Peter basically says, well, how many times, you can kind of get this tone of Peter too. He basically says, well, how many times do I have to forgive a person that's offended me? I mean, isn't there like a stopping point to this somewhere? And then this is Jesus' response. He tells the story of a guy um, who, who there's a king. And the king looks around and he sees that, that he's got a guy that's indebted to him. This guy's indebted like 10,000 talents. A talent would be 20 years worth of wages. 10,000 of the 20 years wages. This is a massive debt. So the king looks at him and says, pay up. The guy couldn't he couldn't do it so the king says okay well here's your option sell yourself your family everything you own and i'll take what's left the guy pleads with the king please have mercy on me the king does wipes away cancels the debt of the guy forgives it then this guy that had the canceled debt turns around and says you know what i think i've got some some guys that owe me something this guy owes a hundred denarii I think 100 denarii would be like the equivalent of about a day's wage. So about 100 days wages. Puts the, goes, chokes the guy, demands payment, puts the guy in prison. And have you ever noticed that this is your heart? Until we live in the fact that God has massively forgiven us, we'll always charge the debt 
all these little small debts that people accrue against us. You ever notice that? That until we live in the gospel, we will never live out kindness. We will always think that we've got to demand payment for every wrong done. And we don't. I think about the kindness of God towards you. He is infinitely holy. You are infinitely sinful. And as we start to live in the gospel and God's kindness in the midst of that, God's holiness, our sinfulness, then we become kind people. So think about God's kindness towards you this morning. If you are saved, you were born as an enemy of God. You were on the other team, fist held high in the air in your rebellion against him. And Matthew 5 says, he caused the rain to, sh- to, to come down on you and the sun to shine on you. The same mind that rebelled against him, he sustained the working of it. The same heart that was rebelling against him, he sustains the beating of it. And that was you and his kindness towards you. And until you can see that, that God has been so kind to you, you'll never extend it to others. The size of your forgiveness equals the size of the gospel in your life. So until we start preaching the gospel, living in the gospel, we'll never start extending kindness. Okay, now we're to verse 3, 5, 3. New creation takes 6. Here it goes. This is the last one. We're kind of off this section, running through the rest of chapter 5. Take number six, and this is where we're about to turn PG-13, so just a warning here. New creations hold sex as sacred. You get that? New creations hold sex as sacred. We're going to get there in verse three and four, but let me kind of do some work here. Okay, so when you think about our culture, would you agree that we live in a sexualized culture? Wouldn't you agree? You can't avoid it. I mean, you can try, you can live in a monastery, and I still don't think you could avoid it. It's everywhere. You can't turn on the TV without seeing the advertising motto of our day. Sex sells. Wouldn't we agree? I mean, is that not the advertising motto? Put a naked woman on it, a naked man on it, it's going to sell more of it. So that's what people do, because people buy it, right? You can't flip the TV on without seeing a commercial. You can't have a computer without event, and you don't have to go looking for this stuff. This stuff comes looking for you. Listen, the internet is a cesspool of pornography. Wouldn't we agree? We live in a sexualized culture. I think 25% of all web searches deal with pornographic related stuff. 25%. It's a $10 billion a year industry in the States. $10 billion. And just as a side note, it would not be $10 billion if the people in the church didn't buy it, right? A $10 billion a year industry. Just a quick note to parents. If you have a computer in the room of your teenager, you might as well put Playboys underneath their bed and just tell them not to look at it. Might as well. It's the, it's the equivalent. Probably worse than Playboys under their bed. Okay, you, you cannot get around it. And this is not just a male issue. This is a human issue. I was at Barnes and uh, Borders the other day and walk in and there is a massive bin of books on top of that bin of books said romance novels. That is just a different version of the same stuff, right? So this is all, we live in a sexualized culture. Okay, now, now this is what I need to say before we look at the, the specific stuff of these verses. And I, mean, I, I hope that the grace of God will kind of land this on your heart this morning. And we need to hear two warnings. Warning number one. God will see through your agreement with me this morning. 
I think every one of us, amen, we live in a sexualized culture. But here's the problem. A lot of us contribute to it. Um, I was listening to the radio. I've kind of been on a sabbatical with the radio. I flipped it on, and a sports radio guy's talking. And it's interesting because he's making this point this week. He was talking about, and he kind of had a little different twist on it, but he was talking about how he doesn't care what people say. He cares what they do. Just making a generalized point. Then he brings pornography into it. Like, we just took the leap from there to pornography. And this is what he said. He said, uh, I crack up over people who rail against pornography. Because I know they do it. I mean, so it's just funny to me that we'll get callers, we'll get people that cry out in public as if pornography is a crime, and yet privately I know they enjoy committing it. I think the church needs to hear that. That God sees through our amen to these things. He sees the computer screen in front of us, right? I mean, he sees the TV, he sees our thoughts, he sees all of that. So I just think we need that warning. Here would be the second warning. Is there's a great chance, just because of of you living in our culture, that you are desensitized to the biblical standards for purity? There's a great chance of that. I I would be shocked if we're not, right? I mean, it's it's hard to, to, it's like a fish realizing that he's in water. I mean, it's just the air that we breathe. And so there's a great chance that your standards for purity, your standard, ladies, your standards for maybe how you dress, there's a difference between dressing um, to attract and dressing attractively. Massive difference there. There's a great chance that our standards for guys, what we see, what we allow to come in our ears, what we allow to come into our eyes, there is a great chance what we consider kind of crossing the line is not the biblical standard. And it's a dangerous day when, when what is abnormal biblically, what is abnorm, abnormal morally in the Bible becomes normal to us, right? That's a dangerous day. And that's where we are. I mean, this is our culture. This is the church. Okay, now with that, Paul has some some hard words to say to us. Look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Here's what he's saying. Put off immorality. Put it off. This is one of the things that we put off. This is the old you. These are old clothes. This is not what you're created to be. New creations cherish sex. They hold it as sacred. So that means they put off immorality. They walk away from it. It's a dethroned enemy. It's old clothes, so we don't put it back on. He's saying we walk away from those things. Put it away. Now, he's going to help us out in seeing what this is. He, he uses a couple of words here, and we'll just say a couple of, of just kind of the general categories. Sexual sin. Okay, he, he uses sexual immorality and impurity. Those two words cover the gamut of all sexual things. So just name it. It's not just sex. It's all these things that accompany it. And he's saying all of those things must not even be named among you. I love how the NIV translates it. It says there must not even be a hint of this. So, so here, here's our problem. See, we, when we think of sexual sin, we think of how close can I get to the edge? So if this is the boundary, can we like tiptoe like and get right there and just not fall off? But can we like be right here with it? And he's saying that is not the goal. The goal is not even a hint. So if that is the boundary, let's stay back here. I don't need to look off the edge. I know that edge has death on it, right? And so I, I'm going to, this is the point of this. He's saying that sexual sin, all of those things that accompany it, all of those things, they're given in marriage. So when we rip those out of marriage, we are committing impurity, immorality. And it, it accompanies all of those things, right? 
So he's saying we put those things off. And it's not just these sexual actions. Okay, it's also our talk. Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So it's also sexual talk. Okay, now, now this is what this means. And by the way, not all sexual talk is, is wrong and sinful. Ladies, you talk sexual to your man in the bedroom, the Bible calls that beautiful, all right? And all the teenagers are like gagging right now, right? Okay, the Bible calls that beautiful. It's not called sinful in the Bible. But you take it out of that context, and it turns bad really quickly. I mean, he uses these words, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Wouldn't we all agree that vulgar humor is just cheap wit, right? I mean, you really don't have to try very hard to be funny at that. And so he's saying all of these things, when we, okay, listen to this, when we trivialize sacred things, we have stepped across the line. When, we tri- when, they, when a four-letter word that has a sexual connotation becomes our punchline, we have trivialized what is sacred in the Bible. Okay, when, when we can make a joke with it, we have trivialized what is sacred. And he's saying, listen, sexual talk that's outside the confines of marriage, that, that is sinful talk. Okay, then he goes on. And let me kind of reiterate this point that sexual sin, sexual immorality, this is a problem of the heart. The heart is the issue. This is why in Matthew 5, Jesus doesn't just say don't commit adultery. He says when you look, now listen to this, when you look upon a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. The issue is your heart. Are we getting that? Like the issue is not just the, okay, guys in here, the issue is not just be faithful to your wife and not have an affair. The issue is to be faithful to your wife in your mind. It's an issue of the heart. Okay, now we see this again in Matthew 15. Um, Jesus' words, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder. And then he uses sexual words, adultery, sexual immorality, right? So those things flow not because someone else comes into your life, but because those things are in your heart. That's where it comes from. And teenage girls, listen to me when I say, or all girls. If you're a single girl, listen to this. If you have a guy that's got a rotten mouth, you better run. Here's why. Because the same heart that produces rotten mouths produce rape. We getting that? Now, guys in the room, do you think that should bring some seriousness to our rotten mouths? To know that that same heart inside of us leads to a whole range of sexual sin? That if we can, if we can take something as sacred as sex and drag it through the mud with our vocabulary and our talk that we can drag it through the mud in a lot of other ways as well? I mean, shouldn't that bring some angst to us whenever we know that the same heart that wants and enjoys and looks at pornographic stuff, I mean, we could just go down the list of things. Ladies, it would get you involved in a romance novel. The same heart that produces that produces a whole range of other sexual sins. The heart is the issue here. And when we find seeds of immorality in our heart, let me just plead with you men and ladies, if there are seeds of that in your heart, you better cut it down before it turns into a tree that you can't. So it's a problem of the heart. And then he's going to say this, it doesn't comply with your new creation. Like it doesn't comply, it doesn't settle, it doesn't compute with the fact that you're a new creation. God has not made you for sexual immorality. He has made you for sexual purity. 
He has made you to keep sex sacred, right? Okay, now look at these words that he uses here. Let me give you just three warnings that this text gives us. Number one, sexual immorality, sexual immorality disqualifies us from inheriting the kingdom of God. Look at verse five. This is a scary verse for me. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. And see, sexual immorality is a heart issue. There's an idol in our heart. When we bypass God's commands and do it our way, that's because of an idol there. And he says, look at these last, this last phrase, and has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So here's what I've come to realize. Most people that walk in and out of church on Sunday morning have no categories for somebody saying that you commit pornography, like you commit these sort of sexual sins, heaven and hell are at stake. Most people don't even think in those terms. The Bible does. And here's why. It's not because you earn your salvation with purity. It's not because you're made right with God because of purity. Here's why. Because the same, safe, the same faith that saves you sanctifies you. Listen to this. The same faith that saved you. The same, the saving faith, right? The saving faith is a lust-fighting faith. And if it is not producing lust-fighting in your life, it might not be saving. This is the biblical warning. If you can just lay down your weapons and you can just run headlong into it, there needs to be a serious heart check about what's going on under the surface. Saving faith is a lust-fighting faith. Number two, warning. It's evidence that we've been deceived. Look at verse six. Let no one deceive you with empty words. And can I just tell you, our culture's trying. Our culture, every ad that you see is trying to get you to buy into the lie that you've got to have this sort of sexual craziness to be happy. That is a lie. God has given you everything you need through the gospel to satisfy every longing in your heart. So sexual sin is like temporary insanity for a Christian where we forget what God has given us in the gospel, where we have forgotten who we are in the gospel. It's evidence that we've been deceived. Warning number three, look at verse six. Such behavior brings the wrath of God. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Isn't that scary? To know that God places a special significance on sexual sin in the Bible. He, he reserves a, a special vocabulary and a special anger and hatred toward sexual sin. And here's why. Because it dehumanizes people. You know, I mean, are you catching that? When, when you look at a computer screen, here's what you're doing. You are consuming God's creation. You are taking, not giving. You are making her or him an object of your desires. That's what you're doing. You're consuming. It dehumanizes people. It makes them not human. It makes them an object to be consumed. So it reserves this special hatred from God. Okay, we'll finish with this. It's not just put off immorality. It's put on purity. God says it's not just take these things off. It's walk this way. And here's what he says about purity. Sexual sin is counteracted by gospel thankfulness. Look at verse 4, and look at this little phrase at the end. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say, okay, so take off immorality, take a baseball, you know, baseball bat, bust in your TV, throw your computer out the window. He doesn't say that. He says, this is your cure for sexual sin. 
gospel thankfulness. Okay, look at me here. That God, through the gospel, has given you everything you need to satisfy every longing in your heart. That God is leveraging all that he is, his greatness, for your good. That's the key. If you don't believe that, you'll never get a handle on sexual sin. Because you'll always think that God's withholding something from you. That God puts this little boundary in your life because he wants to keep you from something good. Joshua Harris, look at this quote up on the screen. Joshua Harris, I think, really hit this on the head in his book, Not Even a Hint. He says this, If you are ever to expect to find victory over lust, you must believe with your whole heart that God is against your lust. Listen to this. Not because he's opposed to your pleasure, but because he's so committed to it. You see the difference there? That God's boundaries are not for your destruction. They're not to rob you of joy. God's boundaries for you are to lead you into joy. And until we believe that, we'll always think God's holding out on us. That, that, that because we can't have sex outside of our marriage, that, that God's kind of holding out some of the fun of life, right? Until we believe this, we'll never get a handle on it. That God is out for your pleasure. He's out for your joy. That's why he says, do it this way. So we've got great gospel promises with sex. Okay, let me just give you a couple of these. That God created sex. This is not our idea. This is not his idea. This is God's idea. And the church has historically done a terrible job with this. We just neglect it altogether. And here's what we've said. And parents do this too. We'll let our 15-year-old learn sex from a 16-year-old in the locker room. Can you think of anything more damaging and scary? I mean, is that not crazy? When the Bible has something to say about this, this is God's creation. I mean, this is his deal. I mean, he's got the the kind of the manual on this thing. So, So sex is God's idea. And listen, it is a good gift. It's a good gift. It's not a bad gift. It's good. And so when you find it in the Bible, it is God's idea and he calls it good in the Bible. One of the first blessings in the Bible is be fruitful and multiply. You know how that happens? Yeah, okay, good. Right? So it's a good thing. Okay, now, now post-fall, just like wine can make alcoholics, sex can do a lot of weird things to people. But just because it's abused does not make it bad. It is a good gift from God to us. And God gives the boundaries for it. I mean, it's very clear in the scriptures. All of these things that relate to sex happen inside the context of marriage. Now, married folk in here. Proverbs says, enjoy the wife of your youth. Married folk, you should be enjoying the husband and wife of your youth. If you're not, there's a heart problem in your marriage going on. It's not good. If you're not, there's a problem in your marriage. And here is what Satan will whisper in the midst of that. You don't have to really enjoy the wife of your youth. You just need to go get another wife that is youthful. Enjoy the wife of your youth. The grass is not greener on the other side. God's grass is always the greenest, right? Enjoy the, okay, single folk. Enjoy the wife of your youth. That means you wait in the context of God's promise to you for a wife to enjoy it. It is the boundaries, the context, the framework that you can enjoy sex guilt-free, conscience-free, right? 
I mean, this is God's blessing for you. And if you'll do it that way, sex will be more enjoyable to you than if you run wild doing it however you want to do it. I promise you. But it's a belief issue. Until you believe that God is out for your pleasure, you'll always think he's holding back from you. He's not. He's trying to, he's working for you in this thing. Okay, we'll end with this and we're done. Sexual sin is counteracted by gospel promises. Why don't you close your eyes with me? I want to give you this one. We'll finish with it. Sexual sin is counteracted by gospel promises. Sexual sin is a theological issue. It's a belief issue. The problem with sexual sin is that we believe it holds out more satisfaction, more joy, more, you fill in the blank. We believe it holds out more joy than God does. But that's not a biblical reality. I want to just give you one verse that maybe you can memorize. I think this would be an effective way for you to be able to remind yourself of the gospel when sexual sin pops up before you. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Say that again. Blessed, happy, Blessed means happy, joy-filled, a happiness that comes from God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, pure has a wider scope than just sexual sin, but it encompasses sexual sin. Blessed are the pure in heart. And here's the reward, for they shall see God. Remember that the next time you're sitting across from a computer, a TV, a movie, Remember that the next time um, something walks before you that, that causes um, a wild thought to stray into your mind. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So God, I pray for your grace over our Stonegate family. God, that you would make us kind people. That you would make us into that, God. I pray that you would do that. God, that you would make us um, people who cherish the sacredness of sex. Who cherish it. It's a great gift from you. It's your creation. So God, help us cherish it and help us treat it as such. God, I pray for great belief in the gospel. God, I pray for our men in here who have serious addictions today for our ladies in here who have serious addictions today. God, where seeds are growing in hearts, God, I pray for your Holy Spirit. There's more sexual sins, there's more options than I could dream of to name. So God, will your Holy Spirit be gracious as you point out those areas in our life? God, and I pray that as we identify those seeds, that we would be faithful to take the gospel shovel and root them up. God, I pray for our people that are just not kind to their neighbors, to their workers, to their wives, to their husbands, to their kids. God, that you would create that in us. God, help us, be re- help us repent from those things. Help us to turn from that and see the greatness of what you offer in the gospel against those things. It's in your good name we pray. Amen.